This is episode 320 of the AWS podcast, released on July 7, 2019. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Lynch here with you. Great to have you back. And I have not one but two very special guests today. I'm firstly joined by Jim Milbury, who's a partner at the private equity firm Parker Gale. Welcome, Jim. Welcome. Nice to be here. And Alan Williamson, who leads the McLaurin Group. G'day, Alan. Good afternoon. How are we all? Very, very well. Now, you two are experienced podcasters yourself. You run a, a podcast called the uh, the PE Funcast. So, it's good to have you as a guest rather than hosting your own show. It is nice. So we, we did the usual amount of prep work, which was none. <laughs> I have listened to a few of your episodes and <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's let's quickly jump into what private equity is, because before we even get into you know what Parker Gale does and why we're talking technology today, I think it's important to kind of define it for our audience because the world of private equity is kind of mysterious to many people, yet many of our customers probably are funded by private equity. So maybe, Jimmy, if I can start with you, what is private equity and how does it fit into the world? Sure. So the, the easiest thing is to position it between venture capital, which is typically buying or investing in pre-revenue or pre-profit companies. Private equity is typically buying profitable, meaning EBITDA positive companies. And I would to make it simple, I would divide it into three classes. There are growth equity guys, and the growth equity private inve- private equity investors are taking minority positions typically in companies. So, you know, a company with 20 million in revenue and maybe five million of EBITDA wants to he wants to sell a portion of it, not 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 more than 50%, but maybe they want to take some money off the table. Maybe they want to use some for uh, their own growth purposes. So they'll take a minority investment, and that's a class of private equity, and they typically call it growth equity. There are buyout shops like us. Uh, so we are buying control interest in the companies that we buy. So greater than 51%, typically closer to 100% of the companies. And that's typical a founder uh, or another private equity firm. But in, in our case, typically a founder is running a company. They've decided it's you know time to sell. They want to de-risk themselves from the future or they're you know getting a little long in the tooth. They don't want to run it anymore. And so they'll sell the controlling interest in the business to us. And then the third class, is it really a third class, but you can call it the big buyout shops tend to be leveraged buyout shops. So they're doing, they might be taking a large public company private by buying up all the stock and turning it back into a private company, or they're buying a very large company, maybe a couple hundred million in revenue, uh, and they're buying it out with a certain amount of cash and a certain amount of debt. So in general, those are the three kinds of private equity, the growth equity, buyout shops, and leverage buyout shops. Gotcha. And just to, uh, to to demystify, one one acronym that was thrown in there that's probably very familiar to you but might not be for all the listeners is uh, EBITDA, which is Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Amortization. It's kind of like what money's coming in is <laughs> basically it. Yeah, so it's t- it's typically cash flow. So you can think of it as cash flow. Sounds good. Sounds good. And so what does uh, Parker Gale do in this space? Like what's your focus area? So we buy founder-owned technology businesses. So we're not buying manufacturing companies. We don't buy healthcare companies. We're not buying consumer packaged goods companies. So we're buying the founder-owned technology businesses, typically software businesses uh, as a rule, but you know we don't rule out doing hardware businesses as well. And our range is, if you, you put us in a bucket, we're typically one. 1 million to 5 million of EBITDA and typically 15 to sort of 25 million of revenue when we acquire them. Gotcha. And we're controlled, we're controlled interest buyers. So we're buying greater than 51% of the, the company. So you're not buying in, you're buying control. Correct. Yep. And Alan, what about the McLaurin group? How does that fit into the, uh, the world of PE? 
So we support the world of PE. So for example, once Jim and his uh, group have purchased a company, we help run that company. So we help them sort of strategize, make sure that the company is set up for success. Uh, because particularly in Parker Gale's instance, the first time that a company is acquired, this is the first time they've been in the private equity space. So usually the founders or the current staff, et cetera, have no clue what's about to hit them in terms of what's my new responsibilities? What, what do I need to do? Who do I report to? My boss has now got a boss. And, and just mentoring and, and guiding these people through that particular phase. Because one of the beautiful things about the private equity world is that uh, once you start the cycle, 99% of the times you're going to cycle again. So within three to five years again, you're going to be sold. You always want to give enough of a runway so that the next buyer that comes in can see the opportunity to which to take that company further on for growth. So we help from the technology and the data side to, to, to make sure that those companies are aligned with both what the vision of the PE owners want them to be and also to make sure they don't make any decisions that's going to make it difficult for a sell or to move into an area to which the PE firm wants it to go to. It really becomes a scaling and feature conversation. Yeah. And it's it's fairly typical that, you know, in our in Parker Gale's case, you know, because we're buying technology businesses from founders, there's almost always a milestone post-acquisition where we need to upgrade the technology or they're they're hitting a transition point where they've got to take something that might have been written in an older language, move it to a newer language, or they've been only selling it on-prem and it's time to move it to the cloud. And Alan's team generally helps us in that process of lifting that lift and shift, if you will, that existing technology stack to a new platform. And and that leads us exactly to why. You've uh, you've come on the podcast today to help demystify some stuff because there's probably a few listeners who are going, oh, I have a startup slash burgeoning software based business, and I'm wondering what my exit looks like, or what the next step looks like, or how I scale. When when private equity firms are looking at these types of organisations, how are they viewing the the existing technology? Because often there's kind of two camps. There's the there's the we've spent a lot of time on our technology and done it really well, and it's ready to go. Or there's also the I've got a lot of technical debt because I've been trying to grow this business and we don't have many people, et cetera. What do you typically see and how important is that current state compared to what you can move it to? So, um, the uh, we could treat this like the newlywed game. I'll put uh, Alan in a, in the private box. You, know, <laughs> you can give the, the next answer. Yeah. He says. So the you know in ventures case, they're often invent, inventing science, and so your stacks, your your languages are going to be very modern, very little technical debt. Private equity buyers were you know whether you're buying technology companies or you're buying a manufacturing company that uses technology, there's typically quite a bit of technical debt. So you're not going to be in the latest and greatest version of anything. Resources have been typically been constrained, and if you look at how founders typically started these businesses. They started them on a shoestring. They built them up. If if we're buying them, they typically weren't venture deals to begin with. So the founder carried the business on their own back, poured all any of the profits back into the business as they grew it. At some point, the business starts throwing off cash or EBITDA, and the founder starts taking taking money out of the business every year doesn't go into the office every day anymore. Maybe they buy a boat uh, and and then they wake up one day and they realize, hey, this is a good time to sell. You know, I want to de-risk myself. Because of that, there's probably investments in the in the business, typically in the software and hardware that haven't been made or big shifts that need to happen. So by the time we get involved, there's quite a bit of technical debt. Interesting. And and Alan, yeah, what's what's your what's your view on on how this all fits together? I you know, to, just to, to follow on from Jim there, fundamentally, the businesses are very much run on a reactive basis. Whatever the client wants drives usually the product feature at that point. So there's really no incentive or line of sight for a longer term engineering aspect. A lot of technical debt just naturally evolves up. And what we find is, is a complete lack of just 
sheer practices and design patterns in and around how I produce software to how I manage software to how I stop. It seems strange to say some of these things out loud now, but you well, we wouldn't be surprised because we've seen a lot of it now, but, <laughs> but things like version control isn't common. Mm. Things like uh, alert systems, for example, the alert system is the customer mm. telling the, the company, oh, we can't get to your website anymore. You know, things like production servers, et cetera, it seems to be, uh, you know, the, the cleaner accidentally unplugged it in the cupboard when she was putting in her, her vacuum cleaner and, and now the whole site's down. We've seen everything from that respect. And it's not that, it, it's simply a lack of knowledge. It's not yeah. that people have woefully. It's not, not malice. Something is just yeah. they don't know what the alternatives are. Absolutely not. And, you know, I, I, I believe you guys do something with this thing called cloud. Uh, <laughs> we, we hear an awful lot of that. Oh, we're in the cloud. We're in the cloud. Both Jim and I have, have learned to sort of smile sweetly and, and look at them just like a, you know, your four-year-old has, has shown you a trick and said, that's great. You're, you're going to make a life out of this. But really you're thinking, okay, there's some work here to be done. The sort of the big one that we often see, which which I'm sure you guys have seen an awful lot too, is they run the cloud like a traditional data center. Mm. And it's not because they don't know how to, well, it is because they don't know how to use the cloud, but it's it's that's all they know is how to run up a server, SSH into it, and manage it from that perspective onwards. Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of that, that good enough thing. It's interesting your comment about lack of version control. That is something that, that I've seen in a few places, and it it still surprises me because you would think it's kind of like a like surely everyone knows that you use version control, but it's often not the case. And when you're looking at some of these companies, are there any like real red flags that would make you say, hey, you know, I'm not comfortable in making this investment because of the technology debt that's here? It'll vary by PE firm because we're buying software companies. Typically, the answer to that is no. You might make the argument it's running on an IBM mainframe and CICS and COBOL. We might not touch that. <laughs> um, but, you know, we've got, we've got companies that have software written in Power Builder, which is pretty long in the tooth at this point. We've got a company running on, I'm still going to call it the AS400 because yep. nobody knows yep. it as I series <laughs> Power 8. Still running an AS400 with RPG. Uh, and, you know, we're doing a migration off those platforms over time, but there's a heck of a lot of software that's been built over a lot of years that adds real value to the customer, but it's in a, a fairly old stack to the point of version control. I mean, I think they always have version control. A lot of times it's, well, Fred keeps a copy on his laptop and <laughs> Sally keeps a copy on her laptop. That's a kind of version direction. control. <laughs> exactly. In a different directory. Uh, you know, the, the important thing is going into it. If you're a private equity shop that buys nothing but manufacturing companies, you probably know a heck of a lot about ERP systems or, you know, the, the software that runs those manufacturing plants. Um, you may not have done a lot of custom development, but if you're you know, buying software companies like we do, you know, we know what to look for and we know we're going to see some of these problems and, the, and we're not scared off by having to make these changes. You know, to us, as long as there's good customer market fit, that they've got a large number of customers on a relative basis, it'll vary by market that are happy with the product that they're using, then we've typically got enough bandwidth and enough resources to do what we need to do to upgrade the stack over time. And I think it's interesting to hear that the both of you talk about some of these technology components and, and clearly from a position of some some knowledge where I think there's a, probably a perception in the technology world that, that folks that come in to buy companies are only focused on on the numbers, on EBITDA and other, other measures, et cetera. But clearly the technology piece fits a lot into your calculations and, and figuring things out. And you've kind of both taken this further in, in terms of your, uh, I think you call it your March Madness episode where you, you pitch technology heavyweights against one another to see what what fits. How do you use that in terms of your 
your decision making and, and tell us a little bit about that process. Well, for us, it's it's important to understand the customer product fit, right? So venture, so at a comparative level, venture guys are not going to invest in a market that isn't at least a billion dollar market, right? Because, you know, they're going to have eight zeros or, you know, eight, mm. eight total zeros, meaning they're not going to get their money back and <laughs> maybe one unbelievable home run. And to get an unbelievable home run, you've got to have a big enough part, you know, um, market that somebody's going to pay you a billion dollars for your company. In private equity, I mean, we've, we've been very successful with deals where it's a 200 or $300 million marketplace. And we were maybe the one or two, number two vendor in that marketplace. You can make a nice return. You can get two to three times your money, you know, managing those businesses as well. So we have to understand what the market size is first. Yeah. And then is there room to grow? And then we're trying to figure out in order to grow, is it an expanding market, which means we'll get new customers that haven't bought something before that we're going to sell them, you know, our solution versus our competitors, or is it a market that we have to steal share? So we're in some markets where everybody already has a solution for something. As an example, you might say, if you're selling an accounting system, almost every business has some kind of accounting system, even if it's QuickBooks. So if you're going to gain a new customer, you're stealing share. They're going to have to stop using what they're using and use your product. So you know, part of it is we have to, we're more concerned with that size of market. We're more concerned with whether we're in a, in a growth market or we're going to have to steal share. And then that dictates the level of investment that we can make in terms of upgrading the technology and upgrading the platform and adding new features or acquiring other smaller companies that we plug into it. So that will, that will drive more of our decision process than the underlying technology stack in most cases. Interesting. And so tell us about the, the March Madness process. I think in, in the past years, AWS has done pretty well in that in that process, but tell us about the, the showdown that you uh, you guys run. So we've typically run that, you know, every spring and it, it'll it'll go across, you know, technologies, but it'll also go across uh, the more lighthearted things in the private equity space. So we might pit uh, your favorite, you know, non-tier one city hotel versus <laughs> your, your favorite, your favorite restaurant restaurant chain again in tier two cities. You know, we, we see deals all over North America. And so we're not just in, you know, we're typically not in places like San Francisco. We're going to be in smaller cities, no insult to these cities at all, but tier two cities that may not be known for technology. And so, you know, part of it is pitting both private equity terms against things like, you know, travel and, and logistics in these other cities versus technology. So what's, you know, what's more important to our portfolio companies, you know, a particular database or at the AWS cloud. And so we, we typically do that uh, once or twice a year is kind of a runoff between, hey, here's the things we're seeing. You know, let's get to what's most important to us this given year. And so, Alan, what do you what are you seeing is important at the moment from a from a technology perspective? Like when you grab hold of a company and say, right, we're going to help this company get to the next level. What what are some of the the, the technical tools you might reach for? Yeah, I think uh, for for us, it's about leaving a company in a much greater and simpler state to which we we came there. As we know, and, and, and as Jim says, we're talking about non-startups here. We're talking about companies who could be 30, 40 years old. They've got their processes, they've got their, their servers, they've got their way of working. And there's usually one or two guys that really know how it all works. Our goal here, particularly when we're moving them to the cloud, because in the sort of the PE space, nobody really wants to manage and have sort of physical servers on their books anymore. They want to keep it light and, and agile from that perspective. So one of the goals that we do is we'll we'll evaluate sort of the overall skill base, say, okay, right, we're choosing AWS as as the main primer because somebody usually has AWS somewhere and, and the usual use case there is S3 as their uh, store for backups, et cetera. Mm. That's assuming they're doing backups, but if they are, then usually S3 is that go-to service. So, so we've got that foot in the door to which to say, right, okay, let's expand into AWS. But one of the key things that we like to do is to make sure we keep them in AWS, right? And that's not any sort of 
love for AWS. No, no disrespect, chaps. But <laughs> it's it's to keep their life simpler. It's one bill to pay for. It's one services to manage. It's one place to keep all the security in one place. We're going to use AWS best principles. We're going to do this in such a way that when, because at the end of the day, we're here to prime the pump, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to be part of the process. We don't want to insert ourselves to the point where you can't run your business without us. We want to be able to say, right, we're leaving you with no bespoke software. We're leaving you with industry best standards. And if you need to scale that team, then there's a world of people out there that's going to help you with no problems whatsoever. What we don't want to do, and this is part of the March Madness as well, we don't want to pick a technology that we don't think has got a long lifetime. And for us, a lifetime is at least a five to 10 year run. Mm -hmm. Is this thing going to still be here in five to 10 years? Because another company is going to buy this and we don't want them to be inheriting basically a legacy or, well, that cool thing today has just lost its shine and there's nobody wanting to, to develop for it today. So we're going to have a major problem getting support staff or developers for it. So for us, it's about keeping it simple, keeping it scalable. And scalable for us is, can I hire people for it? Just to frame this, Simon, what is it, 2019? You know, Alan just gave his own personal stamp to JavaScript you know, on the server side in 2019. <laughs> He's finally sold on it. It may actually, it may be around now. Yeah, I mean, I think we generally call this you know, the Dunkirk strategy. We're doing an organized retreat here from their existing stack. So as Alan mentioned, you know, they may start by using S3 to store their backups or maybe as a, you know, as a file system storage, slowly but surely getting them to move other services like managed relational database services. So, you know, why should you be running your own database servers? You don't need to do that. Like slowly but surely, we're moving pieces of the architecture over into the into the AWS platform, leaving it in a more scalable state than we find it. That's kind of our goal. And to Alan's point, you know, we don't want to be using something that's too bleeding edge that may not make it. You know, we see lots of, you know, a, a great example was probably three or four years ago, if it wasn't written in Ruby on Rails, it wasn't worth doing was yeah. kind of a, you yeah. know, especially in the Chicago land. And then the shine has come off that pumpkin a little bit. So, you know, we try and keep our, our companies not using something that's that's too old you know we don't want somebody rewriting something saying we should do it in rpg or maybe cobol seems like a good idea and the other end we don't want to use uh you know the latest and greatest something that's sort of just just come out the door we want to keep them within the uprights so we know that it's going to be supported not in not only in our investment horizon but for the people that are going to acquire it from other whether it's a strategic whether it's going to be another larger private equity firm we want to make sure that we're handing something that's in better shape and supportable than 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 we found it and it was interesting yeah, also one of the biggest for that is is the web framework side of the fence. Historically, at the server side of the fence, we've got much more established protocols, much more established technology. It's an easier choice to make there. But when you're looking at the web and the JavaScript side of the fence, wow, all bets are off there. I mean, the hype wave comes and goes within months as opposed to years. And I think it's interesting also that you, you referred to not just the, the technologies, but the talent to maintain and develop those technologies. And it was interesting if we think about, you, you talked about traveling around the US in particular to, to different locations than maybe most technologists are used to be. In so you know, like I said, not San Fran, not LA type places, but more remote places that do have very successful software companies. Finding people in those regions or to service those regions can be hard unless you're using a, a more um, broadly distributed skill base. It is hard. I mean, you look at in our business in particular, you've got founders who typically came from the business that they're in. So, you know, they they were in the industry and decided to start their own company. They went down the street and found you know a software developer that they could find that they knew, and that software developer built it in whatever stack he or she knew. You know, they weren't they weren't architecting this thing. They sort of yeah. fell into an architecture over time. By the time you know we come along, that's when the rearchitecting needs to happen, and you're you're skilling people up 
in these different cities. So it involves training. It also involves, you know, getting them to raise their head up, you know, to Alan's point, you know, sitting in Richmond, Virginia, you know, well, we don't, nobody else in Richmond's doing this. Hey, what if we raised our heads slightly higher? Cause there's this thing called the internet. <laughs> we might actually be able to find people that are not in Richmond that may have some idea about a better way to do this. A lot of it is that kind of thing that, you know, let's, you know, you know, we're gonna have to bring some of these, you know, leading edge skills from the Bay area, from Boston, Austin, you know, San Francisco into these other cities, but do it in a way that is maintainable as opposed to trying to invent science. Interesting. And what about uh, the, the future of private equity and the, and the way you measure organizations? Uh, you know, there's a lot of use of, of AI and ML in different domains, et cetera, and, and you know, using it to help process large amounts of data, et cetera. Does it play at all in this particular space? Is it, is it hype or can it help you identify those, those hidden gems that maybe don't get noticed uh, in general? Well, if you take any product, you know, Simon, and you put, uh, let's say we had whatever product it was, let's say it was a, a software product that helped a manufacturer do supply chain management, and you change the name of the product to be whatever it is, XYZ, the AI, uh, machine learning, big data, Bitcoin uh, software for millennials, uh, you'd sell more of it, right? So AI is one of those things you throw it in the top and people want to buy it. The reality is, yes, is, is it an interesting area for us? Absolutely. The reality is most of these software products could benefit from basic statistics in mm. terms of mm. analysis, not necessarily artificial intelligence. So it's no. more just measure something. <laughs> yeah, measure something in a reasonable way. And there is, there's definitely going to be a point where AI is the right solution to classes of problems, but jumping into, we need AI to solve this, you know, is a challenge. And, and as any software company, we have the challenge of if customers holding their hand out and they've got a bunch of money in it and they tell us they want to buy something that's AI based, part of it is, well, how do we at least embrace the concept of AI? Because they're they're insisting they want to spend money on AI when they don't really need it, but they think they want it. Yeah. And I think like, I, I think in terms of looking to the future, one of the things that we, we've been involved in a number of large projects over the last 18 months involving serverless computing. I'm mm-hmm. personally a huge fan of serverless computing uh, model, et cetera. And that is very apt to a lot of the portfolio companies that we're working with, and particularly in this space, because they generally don't know this type of traffic that they've got. They generally either over-architect the solution for the big party that never comes, and they don't necessarily have the in-house knowledge or the experience to which to run a large server farm. So serverless computing has come at a beautiful time to allow those companies to effectively, you know, effectively play with the big boys without over-investing and being able to try things. We laughed about the fact that, uh, you know, a lot don't have version control, et cetera. The next level up are the ones that are only getting into what's web services. They're only starting to leverage APIs. So they'll maybe consume APIs from third-party companies like Salesforce is your classic example. Let's mm. let's bring the data from Salesforce and do something with it. But seldom are they actually publishing their own API. And that's an opportunity that, that both Jim and I sort of mentor and talk to portfolio companies for to say, okay, well, well, what if it was to make it easier for your customers to talk to our data? Mm. Uh, and, and they sort of get all nervous. Oh, how are we going to do this? It's very complicated security, la, la, la. But the world of serverless has made this much, much easier to digest. And I personally think that the serverless computing wave is going to do far more for sort of our level of portfolio companies at this sort of level than the likes of machine learning and AI and blockchain ever will. They, they are just superficial titles at our sort of level at the moment. I think it's interesting. Yeah, he's got a giant Lambda tattoo on his back. <laughs> he won't say that, Simon, but the rumor is he won't show it, but the rumor is he's got a giant Lambda That's tattoo. That's actually a great 
great idea. I hadn't even thought of that as an option, but that's a, that could be very cool. <laughs> I, th- I think what's interesting though is, is one of the, I think the hidden appeals of serverless is the direct relationship between understanding how much you're spending per transaction versus how much a customer is paying per transaction. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, the difference between those two numbers is what you earn. I, I think that's probably interesting from a, from a PE perspective to say, well, how efficiently are you running and how efficiently could you run if we built this in a, in a more serverless fashion? There's, there's huge opportunity to unlock value there. Yeah, I think in, in the most part, in our case, the software that the customer's using has a lot of has a lot of core value in terms of the business logic. It's the, the challenge for us is let's do it in it to Alan's point in a scalable, reliable way. So let's give the customer solid performance and solid reliability without overspending on infrastructure. And that's that's the benefit, I think, to us of serverless computing that we're not we're not really trying to sell something for a penny that we only charge half, you know, it costs us a half a penny to run. It's more yeah. we got large value to the customer, but let's try and provide that system to them in a reliable way, in a performant way, without to Alan's point, buying 500 servers that we don't need. Yeah, we've seen this a lot, Simon, where, you know, I, we'll go in, we, we, we hear the size of their Amazon bill, and then, you know, you look at them and say, wow, you know, as, a, as an AWS shareholder, I applaud you and thank you. <laughs> as a technologist, I'm buying inside. I mean, holy crap. And, 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 you know, in the last two big serverless projects we've had, we've literally had the CFO come to us and say, I think there's a mistake with the AWS bill. Why? There, there's three zeros that are no longer on it. Yeah, mm. you weren't running as much as you thought you were. Mm. Uh, the, the traffic of your site wasn't what you think it is. And the number of servers that you have, mm, you don't need that many. So, because people get excited. In many respects, I would have to put some of this blame at your door as well. You've made it too easy to run up servers. You've made it too easy to say, okay, let's let's put servers on the West Coast and the East Coast, just in case the East Coast goes down. So, okay, could you just go and look at AWS Health Board and see when have they ever gone down? Dark, dark, dark. You don't, you're not a business that needs to be up again in a second. You're the sort of business that could tolerate an hour's worth of downtime mm. or six hours worth of downtime. And, and let's be frank here, people. If AWS does go dark in the East Coast, they aren't going to be worried about you. The internet as a whole has gone big time problem. So let's temper our importance and, and get back to a reality that, that actually can make this business work. Yeah. See, the simple thing is we just use as a status page for our companies, the Netflix status page. So if Netflix is down, you know, that's our built-in excuse that you don't really have to worry <laughs> <laughs> that it's a bigger problem than us. So yeah. when Netflix is back up, you'll probably be back up. <laughs> well, I think it's also about yeah, cho- choosing the right things to build the right way. And and this is this is the function of technical debt. Is it? You, you make the best decision you can at the time with the skills you have at the time and you kind of move on. And and there's often that that optimization piece that we're kind of not used to doing because I think if you consider, you know, it's, it was only a few years ago that it was more normal to just deploy some servers in a rack somewhere and physically build stuff. They're the, they're the mental models and the habits we still have. So the concept of coming back every few months and saying, well, how can I make this cheaper is not built into our workflow. And I guess, Alan, that's where you're coming from in terms of saying, hey, there's there's a lot we can do. If you just revisit quickly, you can really change the equation. What's, what's really interesting is you can actually re-architect in that way, making your application more reliable and more performant while spending less money. I think that's the conundrum for most folks is they've overbuilt, you know, they've over-provisioned servers, but they've still architected in a way that they're not getting the performance or the reliability they need. You can actually lower your bill at AWS and have a more performance, more scalable, you know, piece of software by architecting it the right way. And that's exactly. that's often surprising to people. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the classic use case that still we see time and time again is uh, HA proxies or Nginx running inside EC2 instances for load balancing. 
It's like, what, what? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't need that. <laughs> Get yourself out of that. And, and again, it's simply lack of knowledge. Mm. And it's it's also running towards something that they know. But but we've spent years in these HX proxy scripts. We know exactly how this works. And we can, I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not in the business of load balancing. You're in the business of making this widget. Get out of that business. And, you know, Jim made the point earlier before. It says managed uh, databases is another area that we say, okay, right. Guys, get out of that business. You just you need to store data, you need to query data, but can you leave the logistics of running a database server to those that are doing it? And and the other area of the three-legged stool in this respect, and, and Jim is, is very funny when he gets into his rant about this, is security. Do you think your security team is going to beat the security team running at AWS trying to keep away all the bad people from this surface? <laughs> and you know, that get back to what you do. Yeah, but we've got, you know, we've got Dave who knows a lot about, you know. You know, Dave knows a lot about network security, so you know we just leave it up to Dave. Yeah, that's the problem. It's like, and we, and that is a bias that we have to get past. It's like you're one guy that sort of knows something about PC security that doth not a advanced anti, you know, anti phishing, anti attacking squad make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge when you step up when you scale up as well. Hey, um, Jim, where do it people is. find the uh, the PE Funcast? How can they get uh, get involved? So you can certainly get it on uh, the iTunes. I'm saying like my dad would say it, the iTunes. <laughs> You know, the Google, the Amazon. (laughs) Uh, You can certainly find it on iTunes. It's the Private Equity Fundcast. It's on our website, parkergale.com. It's in Google Play, Uh, you know, in, uh, you know, wherever, what is it, wherever, uh, whatever is Wherever good podcasts are found. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wherever the good podcasts are found, that's uh, that's where we are. And Jim, I have to thank you for making the the ability to get on the podcast because I believe you had a knee-breaking incident recently. Yes, we're not exactly sure how I broke my kneecap, but I <laughs> I was in a hip to knee cast here <laughs> the last <laughs> two weeks that is removable. As it turns out, that they want, they get you out of that, and they put a they put another kind on where you lose use a little Allen wrench where it's supposed to turn your knee, you know, every so many hours, so it so it'll continue to bend. I found that to be a less than pleasant process. As I, we can like to say. I can imagine. I can imagine. That's why you stick to software, not hardware. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a hard problem right well I, I want to thank you both for coming onto the podcast if, if only for uh encouraging me by mentioning not one but two technologies i have prominently on my resume which is kicks cobol and power builder i have qualifications in both so if you need anyone to clean up that technical debt you know how to reach out to me <laughs> well as a matter of fact so we got some pibbles we're not sure what actually is in them so oh man i'm good with pibbles i've had pibbles for years you separately uh, the tr- it's like a star trek episode right the trouble with pibbles right? alan thanks so much for joining us Welcome. And Jim, thank you for joining us. Thanks again, guys. Excellent. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to do that. And until next time, keep on building.